team at Subject ACT acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we broadcast on, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. Hello and welcome to Subject ACT with me, Hedda Murray. Subject ACT brings you stories from your local Canberra community and beyond, stories with a global dimension. It's great to be back in 2021. The team here at Subject ACT are all fired up and we're looking forward to bringing you some really interesting and fresh interviews this year. Now, it's been an unusually wet summer here in Canberra, I'm sure you'll agree. So let's dry off by visiting Antarctica. Ironically, the driest continent on the planet, also arguably the most protected, untouched and remote region on Earth. The seal and penguin colonies are really active at this time of year. The penguin chicks are calling to the adults who are replying. Let's listen in. But perhaps this idyllic world is not as untouched as we think. Anna Kelly from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, University of Tasmania, joins me later in the program to discuss a disturbing world-first discovery she made last year. But before we meet Anna, let's talk with Chris Johnson from WWF Australia to find out just what is going on down there and how to get involved. Welcome, Chris. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Good, thank you. Now, Chris, you've travelled to Antarctica, so you would have witnessed seal and penguin colonies firsthand? Uh, yes, I have. I've luckily, luckily have been to Antarctica a few times, uh, primarily to the Antarctic Peninsula. And what's your impression of them? Well, a- Antarctica, well, is, is an amazing place. Kind of to set the scene, it's, it, a lot of people don't know how incredible it is. It's our southernmost continent, and it's actually the largest wilderness on Earth. It's about one and a half times the size of Australia in size, and it's actually been established as a reserve for peace and science under the Antarctic Treaty, so it's this incredible place that belongs to all of us. But you have this incredible wealth of wildlife because the oceans are so rich with uh, Antarctic krill, and so you find everything from penguins, seals, uh, whales, seabirds, everywhere. It's a a pretty, pretty incredible place to Mm. witness all the wildlife. I can imagine. And I imagine that many of us believe that Antarctica is relatively safe from the stresses and strains of the world beyond. Antarctica feels like it's far away, but we are having an impact on it. And in a number of different ways, Uh, climate change, especially is warming the Antarctic, especially West Antarctica. Temperatures have risen by 2.8 degrees centigrade in the last 50 years, which is about five times the global rate of warming. Um, And also those temperatures are are warming the oceans, which affect glaciers. So for example, on the Antarctic Peninsula, about 90% of the glaciers have receded since the 1940s. And then you hear a lot about sea ice. Sea ice is really important for wildlife, um, particularly for Antarctic krill. It's critical habitat for krill. And in places like the Antarctic Peninsula, we're seeing 85 less days of sea ice per year, which is, you know, long-term going to impact krill survival and their life cycles. Uh, 
Um, so that's really the concern is climate change is, is impacting Antarctica at a, a quite a fast rate. Let's break that open a little more. What is science telling us about the impacts of climate change that are unique to Antarctica and the sub-Antarctic region? Obviously, krill are a fairly critical part of that. Yeah, krill are what we call the key species of the marine food web. Um, And you have a number of different krill predators that come to feed on krill during the summer months. So you have whales migrating from Australia. Humpback whales, for example, travel uh, far distances to the Antarctic continent to feed on uh, krill. Baleen whales, such as Antarctic blue whales, fin whales, minke whales, are all in the region feeding on krill. A number of penguin species feed on krill, um, as well as seals and seabirds and fish. Mm-hmm. So it really, when you have climate impacting krill, that's a major concern for the entire Antarctic marine life. I asked Chris whether temperatures rising in East Antarctica match that of the temperature rises in West Antarctica and whether this was affecting krill populations in that region as well. Uh, Yes, they are, unfortunately. So we're seeing about one and a half degrees Celsius increase in ocean temperature, which is actually causing krill um, to move further south. So krill are on the move, which is changing habitats in the area. But you also have a pressure uh, with krill fishing. There's a commercial krill fishery that operates within the same area on the Antarctic Peninsula where there's major warming. And you definitely, it's a, it's a hot spot, we call it, uh, of environmental change and, and human pressures. Yeah, but with sea, loss of sea ice and ocean warming, you know, this is impacting penguins. You mentioned penguins at the beginning. It's, you know, climate models are predicting that diminishing sea ice will have an impact on species like emperor penguins. And that loss could be anywhere from 40 to 99 percent by the end of the century so it's a quite wide margin we just don't you know we we know there's going to be impact we just don't know exactly what that will be it's a major concern for it chris how does what we do here in australia and in particular for our listeners here in canberra how, how does what we do here in canberra impact upon what's happening in antarctica and why is it important and by Canberra, I don't mean the federal politicians. I mean yeah. the people who live here 24-7 and get up in the morning and brush our teeth and think about what to wear and get on with the day. How do our decisions affect Antarctica? Well, we, our actions at home are definitely influencing uh, the polar regions, the Arctic and the Antarctic. That's where we're seeing climate change really magnified at the moment. And so what we can do is take action at home. And we talk a lot about you know, moving towards a zero carbon future. That's really important because by reducing our greenhouse emissions, we can have an effect long term, not in the immediate term, but in the long term. So, you know, at WF Australia, we're calling for a renewable, a renewables future in Australia, um, both on a local, state and federal level, where Australia could become a leading exporter of renewable energy, reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, working together, and there's a lot of opportunities because of that. So mm-hmm. I think that if, you know, in terms of helping Antarctica uh, by helping ourselves moving towards a zero-carbon future um, will help the incredible wildlife on mm-hmm. the Antarctic. I believe the ACT has a target of reducing overall emissions by 50 to 60 percent below 1990 levels by 2025, so just in a few years, and achieving net zero emissions by 2045. That's right. It all helps. And uh, even initiatives with um, electric cars 
greater uptake of electric cars in, in Canberra are really important. So everything helps. But look, we can't feel too smug about what we do here in Canberra because there's a whole lot more that's needed and Canberrans like to travel and when restrictions are lifted, an increasing number of us will probably look to take a trip to Antarctica next summer. Chris, is Antarctic tourism part of the problem or is it part of the solution? Well, at the moment, we are keeping our eye on growing tourism. So just to give you a a sense of how many people visit, there were about 74,000 people that visited Antarctica last year. Mm. And they usually go between uh, the end of October and the end of March. And that was up from about 50,000 the year before. So it is growing year on year over Mm. the past few years. It's primarily occurring on the Antarctic Peninsula, where people travel to uh, South America, take a ship um, across the Drake Passage to the peninsula. But we're seeing a growing number of operators as well. So you're seeing um, increased ship traffic in a very sensitive area where you've got foraging wildlife in the region, penguins, whales, seals, uh, seabirds. So it's something that we have to watch because it, because it's growing. But at the same time, you know, tourism can be part of the solution. There are increasingly newer ships coming online, which are lower, have a lower carbon footprint, which is good. So old, the older mm-hmm. fleet is being replaced by newer ships. But also we're doing research off um, Antarctic tourism ships to help monitor wildlife and help monitor uh, the impact. So there's an industry association called IATO, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, and they heavily regulate how tourism visits different locations. They manage when uh, different operators can visit sites, um, and that's tightly regulated uh, throughout the season. But with some of the work that we're doing is um, we work with researchers and are doing well research off tourism vessels because it gives us this amazing platform to do research, and Antarctic research is so expensive. And we're working with Intrepid Travel uh, over the next couple of years to do Antarctic expeditions uh, with WWF supporters. And we do um, whale research where we're looking at using new technologies to study whales, where they're feeding and how they're feeding. Um, That will help inform the design of a new marine protected area that's being considered on the Antarctic Peninsula. That's that's one of the benefits of, of tourism. It gives us that platform to fill in gaps with research. Now that you've mentioned the marine protected area, I was doing a bit of reading about the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, and part of their brief is to protect Antarctic wildlife. That's right. So, so Kamlar, it's part of the Antarctic Treaty System. It actually meets in Hobart every year, where uh, 26 countries, including the EU, come together and talk about how they are going to conserve Antarctic wildlife and manage fisheries in the Southern Ocean. And as part of that, they have made a commitment to implement a network of marine protected areas around the continent. So it's a very innovative pledge that governments have made to do that, to be highly precautionary in in terms of how we use the Southern Ocean. But one of the problems is that we've had some progress on establishing marine protected areas. So in 2016, we established the largest marine reserve on Earth in the Ross Sea, which is, it was an amazing achievement. It's um, an absolutely massive area. It's the size of, uh, of Germany, France, and Spain combined and yeah. the amount of ocean that protects. But we're also seeing a slow commitment to that pledge. So we have 
three MPA proposals that are being negotiated. One that the Australian government is actually sponsoring in East Antarctica. Um, that's been negotiated now for nine years, and it, it still hasn't passed. And those geopolitics are coming into play because Kemlar, like the Antarctic Treaty, uh, is governed by consensus. So everyone has to vote yes for something to pass. Mm. And that's one of the problems is that we have a couple countries who don't want to close areas to fishing, even though the science says that we need to implement marine protected areas to protect wildlife uh, and krill for a more long-term sustainable fishery. So there are benefits to fisheries by closing areas, but more politics are at play now than science. And mm. so that's one of the things that we're seeing at Kamlar, mm. is slowing down that commitment. That might put Kamlar's credibility at risk if it has to wait for all members to agree to something and it's taking year on year on year on year to enact these applications for marine protected areas. Well, it is, it's, it is frustrating. And I think we have had some, you know, we've had some barriers, especially the past few years. We do, we do have some hope, I think, with the new U.S. government coming in under the Biden administration. That's going to help. A lot of international policy meetings have seen uh, the U.S., um, I'd say, not send their strongest delegations. So they aren't as strong a voice for ocean conservation than they have been over the years because mm-hmm. the U.S. helped establish the Rock Sea. MPA in 2016. Oh, okay. So that's giving us hope that um, a stronger uh, U.S. voice will have an impact. But also we're working with uh, creatively to try to figure out how we can protect areas. And WWF, Greenpeace, and a few charitable trusts worked together with an industry association called the Antarctic Responsible Krill Harvesting Companies, called ARC. Mm-hmm. And they represent about 90% of the krill fishing industry. And they've committed to closing an area uh, year-round on the northern Antarctic Peninsula in an area called Hope Bay, which is crucial habitat for Adelie's penguins. And it's an area about 4,500 square kilometers. So we're trying to work creatively outside of Kamlar, too, to get commitments by the industry to better manage and to be more precautionary in the, in the way they're doing fishing, which is great news. But people do want to, you know, they do see Antarctica as a special place it's a place that we need to protect. But we're also running out of time because climate change is impacting it very quickly. Mm. And so we need to make decisions now mm. um, to have an impact. If you could have one of the several things that we've spoken about here immediately changed in Antarctica, what would that be? What's the number one priority? Well, actually, I'd say two. So there's two, there's two things we need to do. So on the ground, we need to establish this network of MPAs immediately. The science says that you know establishing MPAs, or and we, we call them nature-based solutions, can have an impact. And that's backed up by, by strong science. The second thing is taking action at home now. So we talked about having a, you know, moving to a low-carbon future. The sooner we do that, the sooner that will have an impact and on faraway places like the Arctic and Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And we have to do that collectively. It's not just one city, one state. We have to do this as Australia and multiple nations yes. uh, together. Those are the two things. If we do that, we do have hope, you know, but we are you know, running out of time. So there is you know, an urgency to this now. So those are the two things. If I had a magic wand, I'd wave <laughs> uh, right now is that we can take action at home yeah. and we can take action on the ground in Antarctica. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chris, for taking time out to talk with us today about this really engaging and critical topic. 
Oh, thanks, Heather. It was a pleasure. I've been talking with Chris Johnson from WWF Australia. And if you'd like to get involved or find out more about Antarctica or WWF more generally, just jump onto their website. It's all there. And I'll post some links about Antarctica on our Subject ACT Facebook page, including a report that Chris has written about Antarctica. You're listening to 2XXFM, people-powered radio. And the program is Subject ACT. I'm Heather Murray. Tonight we're talking all things Antarctica. Let me introduce you now to Anna Kelly via Zoom from San Diego, USA. Anna is a lead researcher from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, University of Tasmania. Last year, Anna and her team made a disturbing finding. Welcome to the show, Anna. Hi, thanks for having me. Anna, can you tell me what it was exactly that you and your team of researchers found? Yep, so we, um, as far as we're aware, we have found the first um, confirmed case of microplastic particles in Antarctic sea ice. And when did you publish that article? Yeah, it was published in 2020. The initial research began in 2018 through 2019, and then it was published last year. And I think we're all familiar with what microplastics are, being those weeny plastic particles that are generally broken down from bigger pieces that get washed into drains and waterways and rivers and oceans. Um, Is this what you expected to find in the ice core or did it come out of left field? Yeah, so as far as we're aware, um, this is the first instance of, of microplastics being found in sea ice. And initially when I was going through supervisor meetings with my team and kind of discussing the project and how to proceed and look for the plastics, we had to come up with a plan B for, for my degree just in case we didn't find any microplastics because uh-huh. we were so unsure what we would find. Um Unfortunately for for the environment, but fortunately for me, we did find microplastics in the ice um, and it was at quite a higher quantity than we had initially thought it would be. So, Well, pollution is a massive problem, isn't it? And uh, plastic is now seems to be everywhere. This is pretty devastating news for Antarctica. Can you tell where these microplastics actually came from? Um, not at the moment. That's that's actually one of the next steps of our research. Um, we don't want to speculate too much, but there are two main theories of, of where the plastic is originating from. The first would be local sources, which is what I'm more inclined to believe at, at the moment from, from what I've seen. Um, and local sources would be um, tourism to the area, fishing vessels, any marine work um, with fishing nets and things like that, research stations. Um, basically anything that's happening locally around the continent. The the second would be kind of long distance transport. So plastics that are getting into our waterways from, from, you know, the inhabited continents and near the urban areas and the currents are bringing it down to the Antarctic where it gets trapped. So those are the two theories for the moment. And I guess we should bear in mind that that ice core was drilled way back in 2009, which is some 12 years ago now. Yes, I was actually in middle school when that core was drilled, so I can't even imagine um, how much how much worse it could possibly be now than it was then. Mm. I guess that uh, microplastics are 
entering the food chain in Antarctica via the phytoplankton which krill feed on and other larger marine life. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the big concerns for the local ecosystem. So krill, they, they're a keystone species in the Antarctic and they do feed off of um, the, the microalgae and everything like that that comes out of the sea ice. So if there's plastics that are inadvertently falling out of the sea ice as well, um, it's very possible that they are consuming those plastics and then whatever eats krill, whether that be, you know, whales, penguins, seals, anything like that, they could um, be ingesting that plastic secondhand and you have what's called bioaccumulation where it works its way up the food chain and has negative impacts on reproduction and just overall digestive health of the animals in the area. Can we just go back a little bit to uh, tourism? You mentioned uh, Antarctic tourism. Is there much Antarctic tourism down that side of Antarctica? I always understood most of it happened from West Antarctica underneath uh, South America. Correct. Yeah. So the Western Peninsula is where most of the tourism and honestly, most of the research activity goes on. Um, the, the peninsula over that way, that's where McMurdo Station is, the biggest Antarctic station. So it is interesting because we drilled a core on the East Coast, um, m my next steps are going to be drilling them all around the continent and comparing the most heavily populated areas in the West to some lesser populated areas in the East um, and see is there a difference in the amount of plastic from one to the other? Because if there's a lot more plastic that you're finding on, on the Western side of the continent, that would kind of lend itself to the idea that local activities are having a big impact. So do you know if there uh, are any steps that have been taken to short circuit the problem? Has, has this news, I, I imagine this news has got out far and wide. Um, do you know if anyone's taking any steps to short circuit it? Um, I'm not sure. I have seen some, not not in Antarctica, but definitely there are people working on the microplastics problem of, of just trying to figure out ways to kind of sift it out of out of the ocean, which is a, a huge task. Um, but I think on a more local level to the Antarctic, all the the uh, research stations now have wastewater treatment plants, which they didn't at the time that the ice core was drilled. So within the past decade, you know the different scientific organizations and countries have kind of gotten their act together with, oh, we could be, you know, negatively influencing the local environment just by trying to study it. So that's, that's one thing. They've gotten some wastewater treatment. I, th I think if there are local um, influences, one big one could be maritime activities and fishing vessels and things like that. And I can't speak to whether they are trying to mitigate their impacts very well or not. Sure. You mentioned that some of these microplastics could be actually coming from continents that are inhabited. That would mean us here in Australia. Are our microplastics seriously reaching that far? Do you think that, that microplastics that we wash down the drain, for example, here in Canberra, could reach the Southern Ocean and go down to Antarctica and start causing, contributing to this problem? Yeah, it's very possible, um, especially because microplastics are very light. And unfortunately, the problem with plastics is they're very durable. They don't break down well um, and plastics stick around for generations. So if plastics are being dumped into the ocean, inadvertently, they have to go somewhere. And if they are um, traveling on the currents, then for sure they can make it to the Antarctic. The, the, the question would be, 
are some of the microplastics sinking out before they get to the Antarctic? And that would mean more that it would be local, local pollution that's kind of keeping the plastic problem going because the plastics from the continents would be sinking out. But we're not sure at this point. You've mentioned some future directions for your research, Anna. How will this work in light of COVID? How will you get these uh, core samples from other parts of Antarctica to study in the future? Yeah, so I, um, I'm actually in California and my, I'm working on my PhD and my supervisory team were working in conjunction with the school out here, Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And um, they have agreed to get some cores for me. And I also have one supervisor who hopefully is still planning to go down um, over the summer and drill a few cores. So hopefully I'll be able to get some good ones. I actually had a thought before we spoke that this year could be a really interesting marker for what's going on with plastic pollution in the Antarctic for two reasons. One, because the, the amount of activity going on around the Antarctic is much lower year than previous years because of the pandemic. So you don't have as many people at the research stations. Tourism is way down, I'm sure. If, if there's less um, activity overall around the continent, then if we drill cores and find that there's less plastic, for example, that would be a good indication it's local sources. However, I don't know about Australia, but in America right now, you're, you're not um, being pushed to use your renewable renewable resources. For example, you can't take your your reusable coffee mug to the coffee shop and get a coffee. You can't take your reusable bags to the grocery store and get your groceries that way. So we're using a lot more plastic and all of our meals are takeaway if we're, if we're going out to eat. So we're using more plastic on a day-to-day basis. So it could be that if we find more plastic, you know, in future years in the Antarctic, that could have a big impact. So it could be a, a kind of interesting blip on our radar of 2020 is a little bit of a strange year and we'll have to we'll kind of have to look at society in accordance with what we find and see if we can come to any conclusions yeah well thanks so much anna for joining me on subject act to talk about this really important issue and congratulations on your research findings Uh, yeah thank you so much for having me yeah it really does help join the dots and and it works towards improving the health of antarctica and good luck with uh your future work in your PhD. Thank you. I've been talking with Anna Kelly, lead researcher from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, University of Tasmania. Let's give the last word to the penguins and seabirds of Antarctica. that interview with Anna Kelly brings us to the close of the show. If you'd like to get in touch or send feedback, you can reach us via our Subject ACT Facebook page. It's always appreciated. If you missed any part of the show or you'd like to listen back, you can catch the program via the 2XX website or as a podcast available soon on SoundCloud, Wooshka or through your favourite podcast app. I'm Heather Murray. You're listening to People Powered Radio, 2XXFM. 98.3. It's been great having you along tonight. Bye now.